Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of the End of Sport podcast. I'm sorry to say that I am not joined by Derek today because of some extremely frustrating technical difficulties that he faced on his end. Um, but I do have the great pleasure of speaking with Elizabeth Williams of the WNBPA and Atlanta Dream. Uh, and it was a great pleasure to talk to Elizabeth about her experiences as a worker in the world of professional basketball. So I'm very excited to throw it to that interview uh, in just a moment. But before I do that, I, I just want to try to catch folks up a little bit on the kind of whirlwind of podcasts we've been putting out there um, and also to give you a sense of what's coming next week. Because uh, I think that we've been putting out so many so quickly that it's pretty easy to for some of these to get lost. But we've had um, really the great fortune of some really interesting conversations and people who have been so generous with their time that I definitely want to shout out the work they've done. So if you haven't heard, um, I'm going to go back to episode three. We talked to Michael Shu, a regent at the University of Minnesota. That was an amazing conversation about college sports. In episode four, we talked to Jules Boykoff about everything Olympics. That was an incredible conversation. In episode five, I talked to Christine Baker-Smith about uh, food and housing insecurity in college sport. That was a very eye-opening conversation. In episode six, we had the amazing pleasure of talking to Liz Knox of the PWHPA uh, about working conditions in women's hockey. Uh, that was a fabulous conversation and a great uh, companion piece, really, for the conversation with Elizabeth today. In episode seven, we went uh, in a very different direction and talked to Maximilian Alvarez and Ryan Boyd about higher education, fandom, and identity. That was a long conversation that could have been way longer because it touched on so many themes that we are interested in. And then in episode eight, earlier this week, we talked to um, both... Andy Schwartz and Victoria Jackson about new name, image, and likeness developments in the NCAA and more broadly about the history of amateurism as an idea uh, and its legal precedence. And that was extremely illuminating as well. So I would really encourage folks to check out as many of those as interests you. Um, and then I also want to give you a sense of what's coming next week, which will be a baseball week for us here on the End of Sport podcast. Uh, I'm really excited about that because I both am a fan and someone very interested in baseball and also because really wild things are happening in the world of baseball right now that need to be addressed. Uh, so at the beginning of the week, we will be talking to Andrew Stoughton, who is a columnist for The Athletic about the Toronto Blue Jays and also a longtime podcaster on the Birds All Day podcast. And then later in the week, we have another athlete interview I'm really excited about with Dirk Hayhurst former minor league, major league uh, uh, player, and also um, broadcaster and also author of four books. And it's quite the conversation with Dirk as well. So I encourage you to check out the archive and also listen in next week as we begin to talk about baseball. Um, but now let me throw it to the conversation I had with Elizabeth Williams about working conditions in women's professional basketball. Elizabeth Williams is a center forward for the Atlanta Dream of the WNBA. She is sixth in league history, averaging 1.8 blocks per game, the 2016 Most Improved Player, and a former Duke University Blue Devil. Most importantly, she is secretary of the WNBA Players Association. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure to have you here with us today. Um, and the first question I want to ask you, as I ask everyone, how has the pandemic been treating you in Atlanta, Georgia? Uh, it's been good. It's actually probably the first time I've had this long of a break away from basketball, which is rare because <laughs> I feel like oh, I'm yeah. playing all the time. We're going to have to get so, into that for sure. Yeah. 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 But otherwise, things are good. 
That's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, it's depressing that that's true. Also, a pandemic should not be a, <laughs> a needed opportunity for rest in someone's life. So I think that's a, a good, clear, early indication of kind of where we're going with this conversation. Um, Definitely. Okay, well, uh, the first thing I want to start with is let's get down to some of the nuts and bolts of um, labor collective, the collective bargaining agreement in the WNBA. Uh, and that's because in January, the WNBA and the WNBA Oh, sorry. The, oh, let me get this right. Is it the WMBPA or the WMBAPA? WNBPA. Okay. Sorry about that. I think I got that wrong off the top. Then. Um, <laughs> no, that's fine. Right. Okay. The WMBPA reached a new collective agreement. That's the important point. Uh, in January, you have a, you reached a new collective agreement. Uh, now, under the previous deal, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong with any of this, but my understanding is under the previous day, deal. Players received approximately only 20% of revenue from the league versus the 50%, for instance, earned by NBA players in their current deal. Uh, And that number for the NBA players is not abnormal uh, across the sector of at least men's professional sports. So what I really want to know is, first, can you walk us through this new deal and also whether you think it is, in fact, a win for players? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, one of the biggest things you have to realize is even though we are kind of the women's version of the NBA, the structure of our league is is really different. And the ownership and the fact that we only have 12 teams versus, you know, they're 30. So that makes for a couple of differences in in how we negotiated things. Um, Obviously, we we look to the NBA and to the MBPA for guidance. in, you know, in creating this this new CBA, but uh, there were some differences that we had to consider. And um, as far as revenue, for example, you know, we still have teams uh, individually that you know aren't earning as earning as much money as as some other teams. So it makes it difficult to have the exact same revenue sharing structure as the NBA. Um, but overall, I mean, I think it's a big win for us, a big step in the right direction for women's sports as a whole. You know, the WNBA's the longest standing women's professional league, um, you know, and and that's something that we're proud of. And, and I think having a, a CBA like this, um, you know, will help us move forward even more. Okay, great. So um, can you give us, what are some of the changes, like the, the significant changes in the deal compared to the earlier version that, that make it a win? I mean, obviously the big one everyone wants to talk about is money. Um, uh, yeah, so, oh, shocker there. Yeah. <laughs> so salary and compensation was an area where we really improved, where um, now in addition to the player salaries, there's opportunity for marketing deals with the league where you know, some of the top three or four players have a chance to make upwards of, you know, half a million dollars when it comes to their salary and what they can make through marketing. Um, And generally, and overall, all the salaries for for players increased. And that's something obviously we're really proud of. But we also made some some big strides in things like player experience. So like hotels and travel and players not having to have a roommate, you know, for their first couple of years in the league and being able to have their own room and um, being able to travel, you know, in, in that economy plus section um, and then being able to use charter flights where in certain situations where we didn't really have that option before in the previous CBA. So um, we overall just wanted to make the biggest changes in salary and compensation, um, player experience and player health and safety. And, and I think we, we hit all of those buckets, so that that's been really big for us. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, um, you know, I'm an academic, but uh, I have also been a long unionized worker as an academic. I was struck twice um, when I was a graduate student, have been involved in bargaining on a bargaining team at Duke as well. Um, so oh, wow. I have a very clear sense myself <laughs> of, first of all, how difficult collective bargaining is, um, what a strain it is, how much pressure there is, right, on the folks who are delegated to do that work on behalf of all of their colleagues. Um, and also the fact that although we, you know, people always think about the compensation piece, mm-hmm. but in a lot of labor contexts, that's not necessarily even the only or the most important issue at stake. And the kind of working conditions questions that you've been talking about, I think are critical. Um, and I think yeah, hopefully yeah. we'll be able to kind of tease some of that out more because I want to ultimately... Um, 
get to some of those questions more directly by thinks by asking you to talk us through uh, kind of like what a day in the life is of a WNBA mm-hmm. player, like what what the experience you have is. Because we've, we've talked, for instance, already on the show to Liz Knox um, of the, uh, she's a um, uh, PWH PA um, in prof- uh, professional women's hockey, the PWHPA mm-hmm. um, for the game movement. Um, she was involved in the CWHLs. Uh, she was the co-chair of their um, Players Association. So we talked a lot, of, in other words, about the experiences of labor in women's hockey. And yeah. it's brutal, basically. That's the bottom line. Is what, what she was <laughs> describing for us was horrific from the standards of like what, what people imagine in professional sport. And you've pointed out that the WNBA is... Um, Really the, the flag bearer, right, for women's mm-hmm. professional sports leagues. And so in that sense, um, you also have a lot of responsibility, I imagine, right, in terms Definitely. of kind of the weight you're carrying. You're, you're basically what I would call like almost something like a, like a leading local, right? Like the gains you make <laughs> are gains that are like looked at by people in other leagues. Like this is what we can actually aspire to. Is that something that has kind of informed your mentality and your participation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Um, you know, obviously we see what's been going on with the U S women's national team and, um, and their discussions with the Federation. And, um, I've recently actually started following some hockey players. Uh, so um, kind of learning a little bit about their experiences too. And, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, we're fortunate that our league started with, with the momentum from the 96 Olympics and, um, with the support of the NBA and the support of people like David Cern and, and, you know, um, people that kind of wanted to invest in us. And then obviously you have the individual owners as well, but, um, I think it's also been unique to see how the fans have grown and, and, you know, kind of gotten attached to teams and, and as players, you know, you do feel some sort of obligation to, um, you know, perform your craft at the highest level to keep, something sustainable for for girls and and women to come yes absolutely well let's let me talk a little bit about that um because what i mean by that is the the kind of question of representation you know and marketing because that that to me is a consistent theme that comes up when it comes to questions of women's sports Um, and what i mean by that is that women's sports have traditionally received minimal exposure, right, and marketing, yeah, yeah, but then are blamed at the exact same time for failing to have a market, as if markets for sports have always existed. For instance, and by the way, like spoiler <laughs> alert, they actually haven't uh, in men's sports too, right? Yeah, um, yeah. See, see the XFL, for instance. Um, so, like, what do you make of the ways in which the WNBA has been promoted? Are they sufficient? And what would you like to see change, if anything? Yeah, I mean, marketing was something that was brought up in the CBA negotiations because, like you said, I mean, we we can only do so much as players if, if we aren't seen. So um, being able to have marketing deals that are significant and, um, you know, that – that's huge for us because we can get ourselves out there. And as players, you know, we feel like we don't have to necessarily go overseas or think about only going overseas as much because we know, Hey, we can market ourselves here and feel like the league is really investing in us and, and showing us. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I mean, marketing is, is huge. And, and growing up, um, I was fortunate. I, I did actually get to see, a couple of WNBA games on TV and just even having, even being able to look and see that is not something that uh, like most any other professional sport for women, like that's not something that they have. So we, uh, we really wanted to make sure that we continue that moving forward. Yes, exactly. Um, okay. Well, the, the, listen, the thing that I always want to talk about um, is sort of, thinking about talking about the experience of athletic labor, like being a professional athlete mm-hmm. as a kind of work, right? Because the way in which it's typically discussed in our popular culture is like this, this kind of um, this thing that we all aspire to, right? And it's like, oh, you get to play a kid <laughs> game for a job. Like then nothing could be better. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a real myth, right? That's the, sort of the theme of our, of our show and of my work as a scholar is to, to, to try to push back on that and to, to try to um, to invite people to think about the work of 
of athletes as a kind of labor in its own right, right? As it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very much work. And in fact, it can be exceptionally arduous work. And, ex- and other than in the most privileged contexts, like let's say the NBA or Major League Baseball, et cetera, where clearly athletes are exceptionally well compensated and they typically have quite good working conditions. And I don't think many would deny that. The truth is that most sites of elite athletic labor are not that well compensated and don't have particularly good working conditions. And that means that they're mm-hmm. actually extremely difficult jobs, right? Because they ask so much of you physically and emotionally and mentally in performing your work, right? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I like to then, as a consequence of that, I like to ask our guests, especially when we have athletes on the show, and that's really the number one priority for me is to have athletes on the show, because I, would, I love to give people the chance then to hear about what it's actually like for you, basically, right? Like what a day in the life of, uh, in this case, a WNBA player might be. So is it possible? I mean, and, and that may change. You've, you've indicated that, right? You've got a new collective agreement, and hopefully some of the things may change from past experiences. But could you take us through a little bit, like during the season, in season, mm-hmm. what kind of demands are placed on you? What are your working conditions? Um, what is a day in the life of a WNBA player? And maybe just to the extent of your knowledge, how that might actually compare to the life of an NBA player. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give you two days. I'll give you like a normal practice day and I'll give you a travel day. That is perfect. Um, Thank you. So like a normal practice day, wake up at, uh, I actually have a house in Atlanta, just recently bought one, but m- most people live at the team apartments. Okay. Yeah. Um, so wake up, you know, make breakfast, uh, get in the car, drive to practice. We don't have our own practice facility. Most teams don't. Uh, so we practice at a college. We practice at Georgia state last year. Um, so get there, get there early, do some treatment, do some uh, early shooting with the co- the post coach. Um, and then for our team, we would watch a little bit of film before every practice, whether it was film on the previous practice or film on like scouting film for the next game or like scout or film just like on us, on our last game, on our mistakes, whatever. Um, and then practice, depending on your coaches, is how long practice is. Ours are usually not more than like probably max two and a half hours. Like early in the season, it will hit probably the three hour mark just because you're learning more. But otherwise, it's not. It's like two, two and a half hours of practice. Um, you know, then you finish, get your treatment, um, go home, get your food or pick some up on the way home. Um, and then we usually have uh cryo like cryotherapy so it's mandatory to do some type of cold therapy whether you you want you do the ice tub at the gym or you go to a cryotherapy place we had a deal with a cryo place um in midtown so we usually try to grab food before that or right after that and then uh if it's a normal day you're usually free to go after that so that's like it's probably mid-afternoon by that point um you may have an appearance, so essentially something in the community, whether it's reading the kids or whatever. Uh, but generally speaking, days you don't have an appearance, you know, you're done by mid-afternoon and you're kind of free to do whatever. So, yeah, so that's like a typical practice day. Okay. And then travel days are, are a little different. Um, we don't charter our flights, so <laughs> we kind of have to schedule our days around that. So whether that's practicing um, at your home gym before your flight or what usually happens is we'll fly in the morning, get off the plane. This is These are commercial flights, so grab food at the airport um, and then head to the either to the hotel to drop off your stuff or straight to the gym. Make sure you like warm up and then get your practice in um, for that day. And then obviously after that, you're you're free to do whatever um, in the hotel. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, I got a couple of follow-ups there. One, um, the the community appearances you mentioned; those I'm mm-hmm. imagining are mandated by the league. Is that right? That's like part of your contract. Yeah, contractually, you you're gonna have some type of appearances. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the the other thing is this is this is something that really jumps out to me. So, like, people might be thinking, yeah, you know, commercial flights, big deal. Like, you know, a lot of people fly for work. But what I'm thinking here is, 
you know, you fly commercially, you get delays and you get canceled flights and you mm-hmm. get all kinds of weather related <laughs> nightmares. Yeah. Do you have any experiences with that? Like, how does that, because you, you got to get to a, a game at a certain time. That must be stressful. Yeah. I mean, generally, unless it's a West Coast trip, you're going to fly the day before the game. So okay. you're really hoping to not have issues and delays. Um, I mean, we've we've dealt with delays. I remember we dealt with a really bad one coming back from, it was some, I want to say it was LA or is the West coast. And I, I swear we were in the out in the airport for hours and it was a Southwest flight. I do remember that. And we were just sitting, waiting, sitting and waiting. And I don't think we got home until uh, like, like one in the morning and we were supposed to have something that next morning. Uh, I think it was like film or something like it wasn't supposed to be a full day, but we ended up just having to cancel it just because things just, I mean, we would have been dead tired. It would have been, you know, useless to do anything. So that's happened. And there are obviously also horror stories um, of teams that basically like would that had to miss games and they had to reschedule games because flights just kept getting delayed and canceled or like a connection kept getting delayed or canceled. And then obviously trying to rebook when you have parties of, you know, 20 people that that's, that's problematic. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, there are definitely horror stories. And, and in the new CBA, we, (laughs) with the addition of, you know, being able to use charter flights when necessary, um, hopefully that can help alleviate when we do have problems with commercial flights. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that really jumped out at me. Um, and, and, you, and when you mentioned that earlier about one of the wins in the new CBA, because that, that like people that may not be the sort of top of mind for most people if they're reading details of a new collective agreement, but like that actually affects your day to day life in a pretty significant way. It seems to me. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. And like yeah, when you're a professional athlete, you're trying to perform. Like you're trying to keep your body in um, peak condition to perform. Uh, those little things are not little things at all, right? Like going to sleep at the right time is actually necessary for you to be healthy enough to perform the way you need to perform to fulfill your duties as a worker. Uh, so like it's part of your working conditions. It's not ancillary in that sense at all, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and we still, luckily they, re- they have reduced these significantly, but we still play back-to-back games. And the NBA, they play their back-to-backs, but they can charter the flight. So if they play you know, at 7 p.m. on Wednesday and they have another 8 p.m. tip on Thursday, like they can leave after that 7 p.m. game. But for us, if we have a back-to-back and we play in the evening, we have to, you know, take the earliest flight the next morning to play that evening. And so that obviously can create issues too when you have delays and things like that. So um, like luckily with scheduling, we've been able to, to communicate with the league more effectively. Um, and I, I believe that's something we had in our new CBA, but to kind of avoid those back-to-backs too. So like, those are things that we have to consider uh, that, you know, the NBA doesn't have to think as much about. Okay. You know, you, maybe I just want to, this wasn't even something I was necessarily intending to ask, but now I, I have to, what does a back-to-back feel like? Like part of it is what you're talking You're talking about the logistics here. And, and yeah, I'm here, you can see why it can be a nightmare. The logistics can be a nightmare. Um, but I've also long heard basketball players in general, and I like whatever. I played basketball in high school. I'm just trying to give you a sense. Like, I, I have a real affinity for the sport. I did nothing like what you do, um, but I have an affinity <laughs> for the sport. Like, so I think about basketball and I like basketball, and you know what I mean. So I'm interested, uh, and I know how taxing a sport it is, right? Like, it's, it's people people who never played may not realize that it's like a really grueling game, and like playing 35 minutes game time is an exceptionally taxing thing to do. Right. What is what does it feel like to play in a back to back? Because like pro basketball players always complain about back to backs. Can you just can you give us a sense of why? I think the biggest reason why is sleep. Um, so if you play for most players, they struggle to sleep, you know, after really late games. So when uh-huh, you yes. can't sleep well, that affects you the next day. But if you have a game the next day, uh, that's that that's different than having practice the next day or being able to recover the next day. So I think that's one thing people don't like about back-to-backs. Um, and then, I mean, this effect, for me personally, 
it's hard to focus on scouting when you're playing two games back to back. Cause like the, fil- the way you watch film is really different. Like you can't watch the film on the team you're playing in 24 hours if you're playing a team in five hours. So right, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's a little different cause you end up watching way more film on game day than for me than I want to. Um, so like other than the logistical stuff, I think it's more just the weird change in your routine. Oh, well, here's the other thing um, that always has stood out to me and not, not just me. I mean, like anyone who's talking about the WNBA, like the, the fact that, because uh, we haven't gotten to this yet, the fact that you actually have to have two jobs um, as an athlete, you are a WNBA player, but like you're probably also playing somewhere else when you're off season in the WNBA, right? And for you, I believe, my understanding is that you've played in Turkey. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So most recently I played in Turkey. I was actually in Turkey during all this COVID stuff. And then we, we played a game without fans. And then like later in the week, they're like, all right, the season's done. <laughs> and then everybody flew home. Okay, okay. So there's, there's tons to talk about there. Um, the first thing I want, because I actually want to get to the COVID part of it, because I think that's actually fascinating to unpack. Very few athletes in the world have had the experience that you had. Um, so I'd love to touch yeah. on that. Um, but before we do, I'd, I'd like to get the, the big picture, i.e. Yeah. first, why we have this dynamic where you actually are, have two employers, essentially, uh, mm-hmm. and how players tend to feel about that dynamic. Yeah, it's it's always tough to explain this too because if you think in terms of like not an athlete um and you say like all right somebody's making like 70k a year it's mm-hmm. like okay like you should be fine but our it's not exactly the same and that's like more than what a rookie makes right like mm-hmm. yeah. rookies aren't making or at this point, you know, rookies aren't making $70,000 a year. So you're coming out of college and you're a professional athlete and you're making, you know, a couple of tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and that's really only in the summer. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do in your off season? That's a long off season to not be playing basketball not have any income, um, be living with based probably your parents because, when you're in season, you're in team apartments, more than likely you're not in your own house. So um, like when you consider all these things, like, of course, I'm going to go overseas and the contracts are way more, <laughs> like five, six, seven times more um, than what you're making in the WNBA. So one, it keeps you in shape. Um, two, especially when you're a rookie, like it gives you a chance to play a lot of minutes that you probably weren't necessarily playing. Um and yeah, I mean, you you obviously want to make significantly more money and you do make significantly more money what you would think uh, as a, that you deserve as a pro athlete. So for us, it's kind of a no brainer to go overseas. Like there are obviously exceptions of players that just don't do it and will kind of figure out, you know, what they want to do in the off season. But generally speaking, it's it's just what WNBA players do. Okay. Yeah. No, no, that makes sense. You've made it very clear, um, you know, rationale for it. Uh, I actually just want to touch on one thing before I get to my main question. So is it common for um, early, like early career WNBA players to actually have to be living a significant portion of the year with their parents? Oh, uh, I mean, when I think about it, uh, I, yeah, I feel like everyone just kind of goes back to, you know, their hometowns. Like if you, if you don't have your own place, Mm-hmm. Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, everyone kind of goes back to to their hometowns and they're back with their parents. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point because, again, like we have this idea of how glamorous the life of a professional athlete is, and that really puts it in perspective, right? That like this isn't necessarily by choice, right? It's because this is the, the bare necessity of being able to survive under those conditions. Um, yeah. So, but it's clear. I mean, like, who wouldn't then if you had the opportunity to go overseas and supplement your income in a very significant way? as you point out, like it's a no brainer to do that for many. Um, some people obviously will have reasons not to, but yeah, I, I mean, I think we can all get why you do it. Are there uh, negative consequences to that though, that you experience? I.e. in a sort of more ideal world, would you be able to avoid that kind of arrangement? Are there ways in which it's difficult? I think if you ask most players, they would say, 
uh, they would prefer not to go overseas. You know, that our off season is Christmas, Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day, New Year's, like basically, yeah. you know, winter, like fall, winter, a lot of spring. Um, so being able to be home for the holidays is huge. Um, that's a big sacrifice being away from your family for such extended periods of time. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things I think players are, uh, and they would obviously want the ability to market themselves in the States too. Um, Mm, whether that's through team marketing, um, or league marketing, uh, a lot of people, a lot of fans that follow us kind of feel like in the off season, we drop off the face of the earth because we kind of do. I mean, uh, luckily now there's more live streaming of the overseas games, but mm-hmm. you know, we're still six, seven, eight hours ahead um, of the U S so that can create problems too. So there's just like a lot of, of factors that remind you that you are halfway across the world. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that's a, that's a great point. And actually, you, you raised something that uh, I hadn't considered. But I, just like so, so you have a sense. This is something that I am always generally worried about when it comes to the experience of athletic labor, because I think we often are not uh, attentive to the emotional consequences of it, which I think are are many. Absolutely. But I what I'm hearing right now is like that. There's a, a really alienating dynamic here because if you're like or uh, isolating, right? If you're if you're far from your family um if you kind of feel like you're you know you know you're you're um forced into a situation where you have to um to work so far abroad and don't have an opportunity don't have time to come back does that take a significant toll on players and are there any kind of mechanisms i guess what i'm trying to get at for coping with that do players talk about those things are there support systems for grappling with that yeah i mean it's actually funny you said that because a lot of us in the the W have joked that, you know, this quarantine stuff is easy for us because we spent half of our years overseas isolated. <laughs> so hey, right. we're, we're kind of used to this quarantine life. Um, but yeah, I mean, it also depends where you are. Like I, I played in China a couple years ago and in China, you're the only foreign player. Like not just that you're the only okay. American, like you're the only foreign player. So you have a translator and that's about it as far as people that speak English. So that's tough. Like it's hard to find, you know, a sense of community and people you can communicate with, like your translator ends up becoming your best friend. But when you're in a place like, luckily I was in Turkey where there are a lot of foreigners and a lot of uh, WNBA players or former college players that play in that league because it's a really good competitive league. So you know, after games, you're able to go out to dinner and, you know, socialize with people. And even within your teams, you might have another WNBA player or a player you knew from college or your foreigners uh, from Europe, you know, they speak English. So those types of little things are ways that you can kind of cope with with being away for so long. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about the, the experience in China? Because that, I have to say, sounds really daunting um the idea how so how long were you there um and like having lived through that not because it's china per se but because of the dynamic that you described specifically uh, of not speaking a language and being in a place where like it sounds like your teammates your colleagues your co-workers mostly it sounds like again don't speak yeah. the same language as you so you have one individual the translator who is your kind of conduit to understanding with the other people around you I mean, for any human being on this planet, no matter where they end up being, to be have that kind of dynamic would be incredibly alienating, I imagine. Would you do that again? <laughs> My agent always asks me that question about China. So luckily, <laughs> the Chinese season is shorter than a lot of the overseas seasons. They play more games in a week, um, so it gets done quicker. So that's kind of how people can cope with playing in China. Uh, I mean, some people love it. Some people are like, hey, it's shorter season. You know, I can deal with, you know, eating fried rice every day. Um, And some people are also like, it also depends on the city you're in. Like I was in a really small city, uh, just like a really old town, a lot of smog. But if you're in like Shanghai or Guangdong, which is like by Hong Kong, super modern, high tech, um, like really just like you could live it up down there. 
So that makes a difference too. But um, I mean, our team was unique. Our coach wasn't Chinese. He was Korean. So he had his own translator. So you can imagine like in a timeout, he's yelling something in Korean and the translator has to translate from Korean to Chinese for the players who are obviously Chinese. And then my translator is trying to translate from that Chinese into English. So it's just, it's a lot. (laughs) But uh, I don't know. I don't know if I would want to play in China again. I mean, the reason people go to China is because that's where some of the biggest contracts are. But ah, okay. Oof, I just, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> how long are these? You said the season was shorter. So how long is the season? Like, what does it look like in terms of um, length of the season and how many games a week? So the regular season that year was done by, I think like, like the first week of February or the last week of January, like. The only thing that took a long time were playoffs. Those would go into March, I think, like early March. Um, and but we started about the same time as the European leagues in the fall. In the um, fall, how when? Like, are we talking September or I a little bit think, later? I think the first game was like end of October. Okay. 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 But, so, you're, so but you're there before that. Practicing. Sure, of course. They got a few months. So a few months. We're talking. We're probably talking about a few months. Yeah. And how many games a week ish? Uh, it was two or three. I think yeah. three. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay. So. Uh, yeah, no, it's a lot. Uh, how about okay? So the next thing, let's go back. Let's circle back to Turkey now because you were talking about having having been there during COVID. Um. So this was at the end of your season, then I'm, I'm imagining, right? I'm trying mm-hmm. to I'm trying to piece it together based on the timeline you're talking about. This is near the end of the season. Did, how much of the season was lost for you in Turkey? So basically, the most important part because we make sure, a lot sure. of our money on bonuses, end of season oh. bonuses. Oh, I see. So it was like kind of a nightmare in that sense because that's a big chunk of money we lost. But we oh, so no. we were playing. We played a Euro League. We played in EuroLeague as well, so we played other teams in Europe in mm-hmm. addition yep. to the Turkish Domestic League. So we had a EuroLeague game, I think it was the 11th. And then, so we played that game at home. where It was a series. We were supposed to play the next game in France on the 18th. Um, but that week after, actually it might have been the next day after that EuroLeague game, they canceled EuroLeague. Um, but we still had Turkish League going on. So we had a Turkish League game scheduled for the weekend. And the, the Turkish Federation said, okay, we're still going to play that game, um, but we're just going to play it with no fans. And mind you, this is like one of the biggest games of the season. It's a rivalry game, like two of the biggest clubs in Turkey, um, and we're playing it with no fans. So that was just very strange. And then after that, you know, our GM said, hey, we're just kind of waiting on the Turkish government and the Turkish Federation to make their decision. Um, and then we, we waited a couple days, and then finally – the federation said, okay, we're going to suspend the season. But that was also around the time that travel bans were starting from Europe. So (laughs) people were freaking out a little bit about flights. And so I think, yeah, so they canceled it on a Thursday and people literally book flights to America on Friday. I mean, I think the latest uh, people left might've been Monday just because everybody was just trying to get back before they started canceling international flights. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was pretty crazy. I've never seen yeah. anything like that. <laughs> yeah, No, no, you're not alone. <laughs> Let me assure you. Yeah. That, that's unreal. Um, well, uh, obviously like this, this, we're talking, I mean, with the, with the COVID piece, we're talking about, um, health and well-being, obviously. And actually I wanted to ask you, what are the consequences? Do you feel like there are consequences in terms of health and well-being to having to play these two seasons every calendar year, right? Like to come back and forth between the WNBA into Europe or China or wherever it is. Are there health consequences? Um, would you be um, better equipped to excel in the WNBA season uh, if you didn't have those additional obligations? How do you see it? Yeah, I mean... Obviously, we've talked about the mental aspect of, you know, the isolation and being away from family, but there's obviously a physical part, you know, playing a sport 365 days a year or exactly uh, it's basically like 350, it feels like (laughs) days a year. Um, 
it takes toll on your body. Like my, I'm not old. And some days I'm like, man, my knees feel like I've been playing forever just because I haven't really had this extended break. So this actually the, this COVID break for me physically came in a good time just because I was kind of able to rest my legs and, you know, rest my knee. Um, and then from a skill standpoint, uh, you know, if you're playing for these long stretches, you don't really have extended periods to just do skill training and to work on your game and stuff like that. So you have to like put that time in, you know, within your seasons, which isn't always ideal. Um, no, and not it's not, you know, it's not necessarily as focused as you would have if you had like an off season training workout um, and the ability to work on certain things uh, in that sense. So that's something that you have to kind of, you know, find time for. And, and that's different for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you always hear if you're, if you're talking about like an, an NBA player, right? There's always discussion of how they're using the summer to expand their game in some way or whatever it is. Right. I mean, that. Mm-hmm. There's something about, um, I mean, this, this is always the, the, this is kind of the problem I have with, um, you know, elite sport in general is that, um, although I love sports, uh, and, you know, I think that there's so much pleasure to playing sports and watching sports in all kinds of different ways, potentially, the way in which you are asked to play sport as a professional athlete is exceptionally taxing, right? You're not just like playing a game uh, uh, in a gym for fun, like you you have to win all the time. And when you're playing to win, like that, that push to maximize your productivity and everything else is grueling at the end of the day. And so I think maybe that people don't always have a sense of how hard it is, like 350 days a year, you're pushing yourself to your absolute extreme, there's never kind of like a chance to take time off or give it, you know, a half hearted effort or anything else, right? Because like you're being evaluated on your ability to perform. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, okay, well, I want to shift just for a minute to something that I we always like to talk about in this show, which is also the dynamics in college sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but I actually teach at Duke right now. Um, so I'm familiar with some of the terrain in which you, um, <laughs> which you're also familiar with there. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about your experiences in college um what perhaps just like um because this is the question we always we always talk about the issue of exploitation in college sports um Mm -hmm. and it could be quite cut and dry if we're talking about these so-called revenue sports right if we're talking about again men's basketball men's football at these sort of power five schools i think Mm -hmm. um it's difficult to make a case that it's not exploitative in terms of the amount of revenue that's being produced and what the athletes see of that revenue and then we have a lot of other sports that are considered to be sort of non-revenue sports where it's a much more, it's a kind of very complicated question. And I don't think there's a simple answer. I don't even have a simple answer to whether it's exploitative or not. I think there are a lot of things going on at the same time. Women's basketball is in a particularly kind of complicated position, I think, as a sport that brings in some revenue, right? It's not yeah, seen as a yeah. high revenue sport, but it's definitely a revenue sport. So I'm extra interested uh, to hear a little bit about how you experience those dynamics. Um, one thing we always talk about, for instance, is the fact that, look, if there is a fair exchange happening in college sport, it's supposedly because you're getting this education in exchange for your work as an athlete, right? But that's complicated by the fact that the actual education athletes are able to get, not because, and this is the key point that we, this is where we come at it from, to be abundantly clear. It's not the athlete's fault that they're not trying hard enough at school. It's because the entire arrangement makes it impossible for athletes to get from school what other students are getting, right? It's just organized in a way that it's impossible for the athletes to do it. So in that sense, it's unfair to the athletes, right, who might very much (laughs) want to get that in exchange for the work they're doing. And then they don't end up getting even the very little that they're they're sort of promised in return for their work. Um, So it's a lot of preamble, but I'm just curious kind of how you experience those types of dynamics. Um, and maybe whether you have any thoughts on the name, image, and likeness developments, um, and you know, just anything in that in that terrain. You know, it's it's a unique experience for a lot of us in the WNBA because for a lot of us that came from major Power Five conference schools, um, our experience in college was better than our experience in the W as far as you know uh-huh. having training table after practice. Um, 
you know, the facilities that we had access to all the time, like, you know, for us now, we're not necessarily practicing in our own facilities, so we don't have access to the gym all the time. Um, so things like that, that you kind of take for granted as an undergrad, uh, we, you know, get really well taken care of, uh, in college compared to in the W in that sense. So, uh, that's, that's just a change that a big jump for us, um, from college to pros. But I mean, overall, I mean, I had a, a really good experience. Um, I think it was awesome to see the support from fans, especially the big rivalry games, like the fact that, you know, we could sell out Cameron Indoor uh, for, you know, the women's game against Carolina, just like the men's um, was really unique. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm always really thankful for that. Um, as far as like compensation, it's, it's tricky. You know, we, I mean, we were solid. I think if we, if you could sell women's jerseys, we probably would have sold a couple considering a lot of people that I played with ended up in the WNBA. Um, And we, I think my class was the last class to not receive any stipends. um, Lucky you, yeah. The 2015 class. (laughs) But then we got the money later from the original NCAA lawsuit. Um, So it's kind of interesting even to see like, the recruiting differences now um and then like them knowing that they at least get like a check <laughs> that's separate from you know extra food points or something like that yeah so yeah i mean i mean overall i think i had a good experience in college and most most days i wish i could go back obviously to change some things but just to even have access to certain things so um I, I do think, though, for some of these revenue generating sports, um, being able to, at, at the minimum, get something for, you know, them using your image or your likeness is is fair at the very least. So, sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So you've, you've touched on a few times, and this is another thing I'm really interested in, uh, fans. You talked about fans a little bit, um, you know, mm-hmm. no fans in Turkey. You talked about the experience of fans at like a big UNC Duke game. Um, we haven't talked as much about fans in the WNBA, but I'm just curious in general how you would describe the relationship of players in your league with fans. Um, I'm curious how you might compare that to your experiences in Europe um, and elsewhere mm-hmm. in the world. Uh, I think partly just so you know where I'm coming from, again, uh, a lot of professional athletes tend to have at times a fairly alienated relationship with fans because in many cases, fans expect a lot from athletes right like they have a sort of demand mm-hmm. what the athletes are going to do for them their own meaning the meaning and gratification that the athlete produces and so there can be often like resentment if they feel like the athlete isn't doing enough or giving enough or sacrificing enough right and so for some athletes and you know i did um work for my dissertation in the book i wrote i interviewed professional former professional hockey players and one of the things i'd asked them about was these, these questions around fans and i also interviewed fans at the same time and one mm-hmm. thing that came up with those former professional hockey players was like the fans did not see them as workers, right? So they didn't have this understanding of the fact that like, like all human beings, you have bad (laughs) days because your life is not just your time on the ice in that case. And that can inform what you're like, like what it's like for you when you're doing your job. And yet like fans don't seem to get that. And that can be really difficult for some athletes. So that's just some context for kind of this larger question to me, because I'm also curious, part one of the reasons why I'm asking you this is I'm curious to, for myself even to keep thinking through also some ways in which women's uh, professional sports may have some differences between like the way that fandom operates in that context, women's professional sport versus men's professional sport context. Is there a difference there? I don't know. I want to explore that. Yeah. Um, I think at the college level, the interest, I mean, I was at Duke, so obviously there's bias but the interest was really high in just basketball mm-hmm. in general um, sure yeah that's we true had really great, <laughs> we had really good great attendance but i mean you've got teams like south carolina who like sell out like crazy you know for their yeah, women's yeah, yeah. games uh sometimes more than their men's games um and then like uconn um i mean just generally i think the kind of loyalty and commitment to a college base is is a lot higher uh for the women's game and I mean, I think part of it too, the WNBA is is not that old in the context of sports leagues. So it's hard to, it's not like the NBA, like you might've had a dad who was a Celtics fan. So like you grew up Celtics fan, 
But yeah. with us, it's like the league started in 96. So it's rare to have somebody who grew up, a, you know, like a Sparks fan or something just because we've only been around for so long. So I think oh, that's part of it too. Like we don't have that like bloodline loyalty to certain teams. Like you can have that in college and you can have that in the NBA. Um, overseas, it's a little interesting. So the club I played for overseas, Fenerbahce is like one of the biggest clubs in Turkey. So they have one of the best soccer teams. Um, obviously everybody knows soccer is huge overseas. So to have, to have that, um, they support any of their sports like crazy. So at our games, we had, we had great fans. Like even when we played in places in Europe, sometimes we would have Fenerbahce fans just because that fan base in Europe was so big. Um, and then other teams, in Turkey, like they just don't really have fans because all their money comes from the owner and sponsors. So like those games could be pretty empty. So it just kind of depended on the type of club that you played for. If you played yeah. for like a major club, like a, which basically a team that had a major soccer team uh, or like even like Lyon, for example, in France, like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're going to have a lot of fans and they're going to be crazy fans. Like you need security after the games. So I think for us, it just, yeah, it just kind of depends. And how do, so how do you feel about that? Like if you were, like if I was confronting you with the question, what role do fans play in your life now? So now I'm not asking you to kind of account for the larger dynamics of women's professional sports or whatever else, right? But just more like in your own personal experience as an athletic worker who has dealings with fans as part of your job, what's that like? for you obviously with women's basketball we have way more trolls <laughs> way more uh, like yeah, yeah yeah oh you guys should be in the kitchen i think we have more of that and then we also have some really awesome like loyal fans that support us no matter what because it's it's like we said at the beginning of the podcast when it comes to marketing right like yeah. you have to really look for us to find us so like if you're a fan like you are really a fan like you will go on you will find a random link on on the internet just to make sure you watch our game so like i do appreciate that about WNBA fans and i feel like honestly as players because there just aren't that many of us there's 144 um we do a pretty good job of communicating with our fans on social mm-hmm, um, yep. and i think we do a good job of blocking out a lot of the trolls so i think we kind of have uh, a love-hate relationship with fans in that sense but uh, I mean it's tough when you don't play with a lot of fans I mean I think LeBron tweeted something like he didn't want to play this season if there aren't yes. fans because I, yeah, I, I mean it's it's a big difference when you have people behind you so that's why it's it's disappointing when we play games as professional athletes and we just don't have fans like we're, we're, regardless if our season is is good or bad um you know, you want to play for someone and prove to someone else, like you're not just playing for you and your teammates. Like you obviously want to represent a city and, and play for other people. So, so sometimes it's tough. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating because I I have not obviously personally experienced that dynamic that you're describing, but I have um, indirectly like thought a lot about it because I've had all these interviews with athletes, et cetera, and kind of my work has been in, in that area. And the thing that has struck me is this weird way in which obviously like the, the connection an athlete has with a fan is like, it's really, you pointed out between like the trolls and then the hardcore fans, like there's a way in which that's a real tension, right? The good and the bad. Mm-hmm. And the other good and the bad piece that I've seen is the way in which on the one hand, like as it's been articulated to me, for instance, if I go back to hockey, like there's almost nothing for the people I talk to that's more pleasurable in their you know recollections than the experience of, scoring a goal right in front in like let's say in the mm-hmm. nhl mm-hmm. in front of all these fans like it's really mm-hmm. unbelievable that say twenty thousand people could be pouring all of this pleasure and passion into your body in that moment and like you're the vessel for it you hold all of that emotion like it's it's unreal right i mean yeah. i think it's almost indescribable and then the flip side of that though for the professional athlete is like there comes a moment in the career when that's also gone 
right? And like, we don't actually yeah. account for that at all in our society. The fact that we, we ask people to be vessels for meaning in this way, and then we also discard them at the end. It's like, well, someone else will do that job now, and you can <laughs> kind of go off and retire and like, screw you, essentially. Yeah. And like, how do you cope? How does one cope with that emotionally? There's no way to. Like, I think Chris Bosch, for instance, has spoken about that, right? It's like it's driving in a car and feeling like you just like drive off a cliff kind of thing. And so like, even though he had mm -hmm. devastating physical um, complications that led to the end of his career in that particular case, he was almost willing to risk his life to return because of how difficult he found it to like live without mm -hmm. that. Um, yeah. And so it's interesting to me, though, to hear what you're saying, because you in your very career, like it, you have this complex career where you're like, you're playing in college and then you come, you have a lot of fans and then you're coming to the pros where you have WNBA experiences where like there's not enough, not as many fans as there really should be. Then you're going overseas and some days you're playing with a ton of fans and then other days you're playing with not that many fans. So like you're living that roller coaster all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I guess I never really thought about it this much, but yeah, it's true. I've, it's, it's a roller coaster. Um, well, okay. So there are um, a couple other places I want to go here, and then I will let you off the hook. Um, the first is, I'd love to hear a little bit about your role with the WMBPA. Uh, so you're the secretary of the WMBPA. It's not It's not a large, um, exec, is it called an executive? I'm, I'm losing it. The, executive committee, yeah. Right, executive committee. There, is, how many members are there? Uh, I think it was seven. Now it's six because one okay. person retired. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a small committee. So I'm just curious, what kind of responsibilities you have in that role? Yeah. Um, I always joke that I'm a glorified note taker because I'm the secretary. Um, but I mean, it's it's a little more than just taking notes. Like obviously, making sure all the documents are organized, especially uh, you know, this past off season dealing with the CBA, like being able to have access to all those documents um knowing which ones are highly confidential and and marking those because uh, we don't need any leaks and stuff like that so sure. that that was essentially my role though just kind of being an organizer when it comes to to documents and things like that and how long have you been serving the role uh this will be two years i believe and how uh were you, so you is, is it elect is an elected position yeah, it's an elected position. The player reps, um, they're, they're two from each team, a primary and alternate. So they vote mm -hmm. on the members of the executive committee. And how long is your term? I have one more year. Do you plan to continue? Like, would you ideally, if it was up to you, have the opportunity to continue serving on the uh, committee in some form? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because initially I didn't think I wanted to be on the exec executive committee yeah. like I didn't really you know know how much of a role I even wanted I didn't know much about labor unions and any of that um yeah, and then yeah. it was just kind of suggested to me at first to be a player rep and then eventually to run when this position opened up so um yeah I, I, I love being in this position now and hopefully I can continue moving forward and so what, how were you, how were you convinced to do it? Cause I think I'm really interested in that, like to go from being someone, you know, like a, an elite athlete, this is a really, it's a weird job. An elite athlete is so yes. focused. I mean, like just watch the last dance, right? <laughs> watch Michael Jordan. Like, I mean, obviously he's like probably the most extreme imaginable case, but like the elite yeah. athlete does have to focus on their craft in order to achieve the success that they need to have that job, right? Um, so like that, in that sense, to be um, a member of a, like a, a labor organizing is really asking you to think and act in a completely different type of way, right? Like to concentrate your energies and it, like it takes a lot mm -hmm. of energy uh, and put it in a different place. And so I'm imagining like to ultimately make, you said that that wasn't your initial inclination, but like to make that choice is pretty meaningful. Like it says something about what you believe in and want to do and want to accomplish. So I'm curious just to hear, hear a little bit more about what's kind of propelled you down that road. Yeah, I mean, personality wise, I'm pretty introverted, pretty laid back, chill. Um, but I feel like I'm somebody that people can depend on. And so, uh, you know, people kind of having that trust in me was something that encouraged me to to be in this sort of role where people feel like they can trust the decisions that I make or feel like they, their voices will be heard and I'll be able to effectively communicate, you know, these types of 
their types of wants and needs to the league um, and to the other members of the executive committee. So I think it was just kind of a, like people kind of trusted that I could do a good job at it kind of thing. And then I Mm -hmm. felt like it would be good for me to step outside of myself and have to use my voice more than I might have been doing in the past. And so, yeah, it was kind of like that combination that pushed me over the edge. Yeah, well, I mean, good for you, because uh, it's like it's a big responsibility and such an important one. So I applaud you for that. As a final, as a kind of final uh, area to touch on, two kind of two things which may be in conflict. So I, I want to hear your thoughts. A on in kind of an ideal world, perhaps um, what you would want the WNBA experience to look like for players kind of given where you are and where it might get to, but then the kind of B, the, co- the contradiction, this pandemic, right? The COVID piece and the pressure that's placing on workers everywhere in the world. Like, this is definitely not just an athletic labor issue. This is an issue for all of us in our own ways. We're dealing with it in universities. We're dealing with it everywhere. Um, and it's putting all kinds of pressure on labor that um, none of us would want to see. Um, so I'm, I'm not trying to say that you have to perfectly reconcile those two things, but I just love to maybe just hear some thoughts, both of my, again, what you would like, what you, you know, you were, you were negotiating this collective agreement, you made real gains, but it may still not be like kind of the ultimate end that you would like to see. So like what that ultimate end might be for you, but then also how you foresee this pandemic kind of impacting you and your league. For the W, just one continued growth and sustainable growth. That's something we talked about in negotiating the CBA, it was like, we want the league to grow and to continue to grow so that in the next CBA, you know, compensation will be higher, uh, even better health and safety standards, even better facilities. Um, So yeah, I think sustainability in that sense is something that I want to see in the W um, to the point where people don't even like literally don't even want to go overseas to play um as far as covid whoo um (laughs) so something that we've talked about as a union is the idea that we are also working from home so we you know we have to stay in shape we have to figure out really creative ways to make sure our bodies are right for whenever the season does happen. Cause we're obviously in a position where we don't know what's going to happen. If we're going to have a season, what it's going to look like, whether it's a, like a bubble scenario, you know, where every player is quarantined yep. or in one or two cities going back and forth. Um, like we don't know what that looks like. So from a labor standpoint, you know, we are fighting to make sure that, um, the players that just got drafted are, are covered with their insurance, which they are. That's something that we just talked about recently. Um, right. Right. Being able to have proper health benefits and things like that, even while we're not playing a game. Um, and yeah, just it's really unique and difficult for us to come up with ways to stay in shape. I mean, obviously now that gyms are opening and stuff, people are able to get, uh, you know, and to play basketball, but at the end of the day, to play basketball, you need a basketball court. So uh, it's just been really hard and unique. And I think from like a global perspective um, for businesses, I think we are realizing how global the world is now, um, how much we rely on flights, whether that's flights just for cargo or flights for people um to to get places and to do things and to share to share everything so um yeah it's just tough i mean i i just don't think we can operate right now fully if people don't feel comfortable and if people um aren't able to be tested and and feel safe to do anything so it's tough because at the end of the day the health and safety of everyone is is the priority um so yeah, it's it's hard, but we're we're figuring it out. You know, we're making it work, working from home, doing push-ups and, and all that kind <laughs> of stuff. So, um, but yeah, yeah, we're just we're figuring it all out. 
Well, listen, I, I, I really appreciate those priorities and absolutely co-sign them. Um, I mean, our position has been throughout across all these sports. We're hearing all this rhetoric about, you know, having to reopen, having to reopen. Uh, and the leagues are all about the revenue. Um, but, like, it is so refreshing to me to hear from a player and a, a, a worker in this context, the fact that the bottom line is that your health and safety and those of your coworkers, that's what matters here. And that has yeah. to be the priority, um, undoubtedly. And nothing can get in the, like we can't allow the the thirst for revenue, whether or not it gets to be shared or whatever else. But like that need, like for capital, ultimately to propel the decision making process. That is why we need uh, strong labor organizations uh, like the WMBPA to push back and to protect the interests of workers. Um, so yeah, I'm delighted absolutely. to hear that you're doing that. Um, that's great. Uh, well. Elizabeth Williams, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it has been a real pleasure talking to you. I wish you all the very best luck moving forward with um, your work for the WNBPA uh, and um, your work for the Atlanta Dream as well. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod.